Romans 13, verse 11. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Let me pray. Father, we ask that as we look at your word this morning that you would help us to see the truth of your word, to love it, to rejoice in it, to live differently as a result of it. Father, we pray that we would be those who are not asleep, but those who are awake. We would pray that we would be those who are living not as those in this present darkness, but as those who are living in the day that you are to return. We pray that as we look at your word together, as we read it, as we study it, Father, you'd help us understand it. You'd help us apply it to our hearts and to our lives. You would change our minds because of it, that you would be honored. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, when, when I was young in the faith, or younger in the faith, I, uh, I used to hear the return of Christ talked about in about three different ways. I don't know about you guys, but I heard it talked about in about three different ways. The first way I heard about it talked about was as a joke, that especially when I was a young college guy and we were trying to be Christians and we wanted to remain chaste until marriage and, you know, hold off to the wedding day. You guys know what I'm getting at. And as we were holding off till that day, the big joke was that, you know, the worst thing that could possibly happen to a Christian guy is he gets to the wedding day and they say, I do, and Jesus returns. And he's like, no. You couldn't have given me more time, right? And that was the joke that immature college guys that are Christians and don't drink and have other things to talk about, talk about. Anyway, you understand. Second, second way I used or heard it used often was, was in the sort of left behind, right? Thief in the night, scare the H-E double hockey sticks right out of you. You know what I'm talking about? You guys heard it that way, where it's just like they just want to come in and just scare you to death with this movie. Did you guys see that? Thief in the Night? I hope you didn't. It's terrifying. But they show you these movies, and they try to scare you. Third way I heard the return of Christ talked about was, was as a method of guilt for me, right? Where somebody would say this kind of thing. You know, when you're sitting there in the movie watching that film, you should ask yourself, is this is how you want Jesus to find you when he returns? Well, of course not. I want him to find me evangelizing or praying, right? That's how I want him to find me, not watching me. But is it wrong for me to participate in things that are enjoyable as long as they're not sinful? No, but still, it was a method to guilt me. And the question, though, is a good one. I don't want to be mistaken. Just because it's often misused doesn't mean it's not a good question, doesn't mean it's not a biblical question. The question, how would you live if you knew Jesus was coming back today, is a valid question. When I was in the midst of um, this last year, a year ago, in the midst of a time of probably the most, no, not probably, definitely the most intense suffering that I've ever walked through in my life, I reached a point that probably a lot of you have reached intense suffering. I just wanted to quit. See, I remember when I was a kid, and I would hear my mom say to me, I want to run away. And I would think, why, why does she want to run away? Where would she go? And what would my mom look like carrying one of those little things behind her back, right? <laughs> no, well, I mean, I used to think about that. Why does she want to run away? And then I became adult and went through intense suffering. I started to understand last year what she meant. I wanted to run away from everything. I wanted to quit. I wanted to quit pastoring. I wanted to quit marriage. I wanted to quit parenting. I wanted to quit on Jesus. I wanted to run from all of it. And I called a friend because I knew this wasn't good. And I called a friend and I asked him, I said, how do I handle myself right now? What do I do? And he said to me, he said, Chad, you're thinking about this momentary trouble that you're thinking about. 
Your mind is set on this momentary trouble and you are not taking a long view of things. And he asked me this. He said, how would you handle this? How would you respond if you knew that Jesus was returning today? And and it actually jolted me. That question jolted me. Because by not taking a long view of things, he didn't mean you're not thinking about a year from now and what your life will look like. You're not thinking about five years from now and what it'll look like. You're not thinking about 10 years from now or 20 years from now because those scenarios to me were all scenarios that I could justify why I should continue going the way I'm going currently. Because five years from now, a year from now, five years from now, 10 years from now sound horrific. I don't want to think about that at all. That is no help. By a long view, he meant eternity with Jesus. He meant, you know what, Chad, you may suffer in this momentary trouble for 20 years, but you need to take a long view. You need to think about eternity with Christ, for this really is momentary trouble. In other words, what he's asking me is, how would I live if the dark night of my soul was about to burst forth into the glorious day of the return of Christ? How would I live when, if I knew that right now, faith was gonna become sight, the clouds were gonna be rolled back as a scroll, I was gonna hear the trumpet sound, and I was gonna see my Lord on the clouds? How would I act right now if I'm gonna see his glory and the majesty of his holiness? How would I then live? How would I then live while I'm still plagued with this suffering. And I I, want to make a little nuance, though. We aren't to live as though that day may eventually come. We are to live as if that day is already here. Did you hear that? I'm not saying, look down the road, and maybe 10 years from now, Jesus might return, and you ought to live thinking that 10 years from now he's going to come. I'm saying you ought to live as if that day is already here. We're to live as if the night has already burst forth into the glorious day. We're to live as if Jesus is already here, ruling and reigning, and has already put all his enemies under his feet. That's how we're to live. And Paul provides two admonitions, two overall admonitions of this current time regarding how we live in it. So here's the first one. Don't slumber. Don't sleep. This is the first one. Do not slumber or sleep when that great day is about to burst forth. Do not slumber or sleep when that great day is about to burst forth. Look at verse 11 and 12. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake up from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. Notice Paul starts off this with this, besides this, you know the time. What does he mean by besides this? Besides what? What he's referring to is, besides everything I've just been telling you, I'm making connection. Besides everything I've just been telling you, what has he been telling us? He's saying, there's an urgency. You know the time, this day, the age. You know the season we're in. There's an urgency attached to everything I've just said. And what have I just said? That you're to respond to the mercies of God by offering your body as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. You're to respond by giving your lives fully to Jesus, by allowing your mind to be humbled in your estimation of self, by loving the church, by loving your enemies, by obeying the state as it mediates the rule of Christ on earth in his absence from earth, by loving our neighbors. We're to act in all those ways with an urgency. That's what he means by besides this, you know the time. The second thing is he makes a comment about the time. The hour has come. What's he talking about there? Well, in the Greek, there's a couple of words for time. One speaking of chronology, like the hours on your clock. However, there's a Greek word for time that's talking about an appointed time or season, an age. And he's talking about that. It's the word kairos. He's talking about an appointed time or season. 
And what he's saying is that we're in a kind of time. Not, he's, Paul isn't addressing them, you know you just received this letter at 6 o'clock in the morning. Right? That's not what he's saying. He's saying you know the time, he means you know the season you're in. You know the kind of time you're in. And what is that season? What's that time? It's the season between the first advent of Christ and the second advent of Christ. What do I mean by that? The first advent of Christ is what we celebrate every year at Christmas. We celebrate it every year at Christmas. In fact, we do a whole advent calendar here. We actually have family devotions. We've put up on the website already for you to celebrate advent every Sunday until Christmas. So that's what we'll celebrate on Christmas Eve together, the first advent, the first coming of Christ. When he came as a man, lived among us, died on the cross, rose from the dead. That's the first advent of Christ. The second, we live between that and the second advent of Christ, which is when he returns to rule and reign forever here and gives us a new heavens and a new earth. That's what he's talking about. You live in this time between the first advent and the second advent. You live in this time where you simultaneously exist in this present darkness and in the time in which christ has inaugurated his kingdom you guys know what inauguration is right when the president begins a term he he has his inauguration day and that's the beginning the very very beginning point of his term as president what referring to here is this is the inauguration of the kingdom of christ has happened in jesus first coming was his inauguration the kingdom was inaugurated. It was begun. However, it has not yet been consummated. It has not yet been fully fulfilled and realized. That is coming. But we live now in both a present darkness and in the inauguration of the kingdom at the same time, waiting for the full consummation of the kingdom in which this present darkness will pass away. That great day hasn't dawned yet in which the kingdom has been consummated but we're in the final hours. That's what Paul says. And he compares it to night and day. Night is that present dark time we live in. Day is when Christ returns and the kingdom is consummated. And what he says is we're in those late hours of the night, the sort of early hours in the morning, just before the day is about to burst forth, just before the sun will rise. That's what he's saying. And he goes on, he says this. Look at verse um, 12, continue to look there. Actually, verse 11, the second part of it. It says, The time is ours come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. What does he mean by that? Salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. I thought that as soon as you believe, you're saved. Isn't that how we talk about it? When you believe, you're saved, right? But here he says, Salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. So what is it, Paul? Well, actually, in the New Testament, the word salvation is used three different ways. Three different ways it's used. It's used first to talk about the fact that we are already saved. We are saved. That's the first way. That's talking about our justification. The fact that God has forgiven us of our sins and cleansed us of all unrighteousness. That God has declared us righteous. That happens the moment we believe. We are saved. The second way the New Testament talks about salvation is this idea of sanctification it's the idea that we are already positionally saved we're justified that's our position with god but now we are practically day-to-day working that out we've been declared holy we are saved but now we are being saved we are working that out day to day and the final way that it talks about um, salvation is the idea of glorification that is we will be saved Jesus will return, we will be glorified, all sin will be gone. The way theologians often talk about it is that the moment we are saved, the penalty of sin has been removed. When we're being saved, the idea is the power of sin has been removed, and that's why we're being saved. But what has not yet happened is that the presence of sin has not been removed. We are still in this dark age where sin is present. We have not yet been fully saved in the sense that we all long for. Isn't that true? Don't you long for the day when the presence of sin is removed? When the presence of corruption is removed? We're saved, yes, 
The moment we believed, the moment we looked to Jesus, the moment we knew that we were sinners and that we needed Christ as our Savior, that he was our hope and our righteousness, the moment we looked to him, we're saved. And we are also being saved. Power of sin has been broken in our lives. We can pursue holiness on a daily basis. But we still look forward to that day when we will be saved. When it's all all been conquered by Christ, when only holiness reigns. We look forward to that day, and what Paul says is that day, that hour, is nearer now than it was. So wake up. Wake up. Wake up because the sun is about to dawn into the full light of that great day. You hear what Paul's telling us? Paul is saying that we're to wake up from our spiritual lethargy and live as if Jesus is here now. Look at the end of Matthew chapter 24. Keep your hand in Romans chapter 13 and go to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew's the first book of the New Testament. Just a few books back from where you are currently. Matthew chapter 24. There are two examples that are given here about that great day drawing near. In verse 36, Matthew chapter 4, or 24, I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 24, verse 36, Jesus makes this statement. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven nor the Son, but the Father only. As were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Here's what he's saying. Noah was preaching to them, repent. He was preaching to them. The judgment of God is coming against our sin. Repent. They weren't repenting. Meanwhile, Noah's building an ark for that great flood that's coming. And they think he's a lunatic. But he builds it anyway. And he's telling them to repent. And they're rejecting him. And you know what they're doing? They're going on about their lives. It took Noah a long time to build that ark. People were going on about their lives, eating, drinking, being merry, getting married. They were doing all the normal life activities as if that judgment was not coming. And suddenly, the judgment came upon them. They had been warned. Would you hear that? They had been warned, but they didn't take the warning seriously and the judgment came upon them when they did not expect it. Jesus is saying. And look what he goes on to say. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. So will be his return. Verse 40. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding in the mill. One will be taken and one left. Therefore stay awake for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. That's true, isn't it? If some thief sent you a letter and said, I'm coming at this time tonight to break into your house, you would stay awake, right? That's what Jesus is saying. I've told you I'm returning very soon. Stay awake. Therefore, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming an hour you do not expect. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master set over his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed. Hear this, Christians. Hear this, those who profess to believe. If that wicked servant says to himself, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You hear the warning? Church, hear the warning? Jesus isn't talking about losing your salvation here. He's addressing the wicked servant. However, the wicked servant thinks he's the servant of his master, doesn't he? And he's not. He's the servant of himself. 
He goes on, tells this parable of the ten virgins of chapter 25, verse 1. Look, then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Who are the ten virgins? The ten virgins are the bridesmaids, right? They're the bridesmaids. And their job is to be ready for the wedding day. For the sake of the bride, they're to be ready for the wedding day. It's their job. And they're going to go with the bridegroom. They're supposed to meet him and go with him. Five of these virgins or bridesmaids were foolish, and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. You hear what's happening here? Basically, the bridesmaids are waiting for the bridegroom to come, and the bridegroom is delayed. They're supposed to go with him as the whole wedding party. Here's what happened in, in these kinds of weddings in the first century. You had a bride, you had a bridegroom. These two people were betrothed to one another. After their betrothal or their engagement, which could last up to a year or so, we don't really know, just depended. After the betrothal, they were considered married in the sense that we are now where we have to get a divorce. However, they could not consummate their marriage because they had not had a wedding yet. And what would happen is the bridegroom would get betrothed to the bride. He would leave. And then in a day that the bride did not know, day the bride did not know, all of a sudden the bridegroom would show up with the wedding party. That included the bridesmaids. And they would come to pick up the bride. And basically they'd arrive, and as soon as they got there, he would come in, and the wedding would happen. You guys understand the picture? Right then. And the bride was to be readying herself all the time for his coming. That analogy of the bride and the bridegroom, of us being the bride, the church being the bride, waiting for the groom to return, and making ourselves ready for him, staying devoted fully to him, is picked up by Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. However, here... Here what's happening is we're not the bride in this picture. So don't try to push the analogy too far. We're the bridesmaids. We're the wedding party. We're going to the great wedding supper of the Lamb. We're going to the wedding banquet. And we are supposed to be making ourselves ready for that day. We're not supposed to fall asleep because the groom, the groom is delayed. And he says this, that five of them fell asleep. Why did they fall asleep? Because they weren't putting oil in their lamps. They had to refill those lamps to keep them burning. As the bridegroom delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. Look at verse 6. But at midnight there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, Go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. After, afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open the door to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Hear, you hear what Jesus is saying? If you are my servants... If you were part of my wedding party, go to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. You don't have to turn there now. But if you go to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, if you are my bride, then you are making yourself ready. You are not going to sleep. And church, if you are professing to be believers and Jesus and you are asleep, you are caught up in this present darkness. You are spiritually dead. He does not know you. You hear that? That's Jesus' warning. That's Paul's warning. So he says to you, wake up. For if you do not wake up, you may hear Christ say to you, I do not know you. That is the worst five words you will ever hear uttered by anyone. Is when the great king, the Lord of glory, comes in judgment and he looks to you and says, I do not know you. It's the worst thing that could ever be said to you. And that's what he warns you. If you do not wake up, those are the words you will hear. Second, 
Let your attire and your walk be fitting for the day Christ rules. Let your attire and your walk, your clothing and the way you walk, be fitting for the day Christ rules. Look at verse 12b of Romans, sorry, of Romans 13, verse 12. The second part of verse 12b doesn't help you much, does it? The second part of verse 12 in Romans 13. So then, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Paul provides really three antithetical statements here, three of them, and, and here they are. Cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. That's the first one. Second one, walk in the daytime, not as those who walk in the night. That's the second one. The third one is this, put on the Lord Jesus and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. So let me take the three antitheses separately. Here's, here's the first one in verse um, verse 12, the second part. Let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. In other words, by works, he means cast off the deeds of darkness. Cast off the actions of darkness, the attitudes, the affections, all of it is caught up there. Cast that off and put on the weapons of light. What does he mean? The armor or the tools of light. Paul's speaking here using an analogy of a spiritual battle, isn't he? When you cast off one set of deeds or works and you put on armor or weapons, you're, why are you putting on armor or weapons? For the sake of a spiritual war is what he's talking about. He's saying that in this time of darkness, just before the dawning of the great day of Christ, we must cast off sinful behaviors. We must cast off sinful attitudes. We must cast off sinful affections. And we must put on the tools or the weapons or the armor of light or righteous weapons, holy weapons. Do not think that in this final hour of the night we're not in the midst of a spiritual war. Please don't think we're not in the midst of a spiritual war. Christians, you are in the midst of a battle. And I often get asked questions because of the spiritual war we're in. I often get asked questions about Satan or demons or ghosts. And incidentally, just as a side note, ghosts, when people talk about ghosts, they're referring to disembodied souls that are floating about the earth. Those don't exist. I know Casper the Friendly Ghost was a nice cartoon, but he's not real, right? People, when they die, their souls either go to heaven or to hell. They don't float around your house and haunt you, okay? So you know. People say, well, there's some presence maybe. So they start asking me questions about demons, or say, well, they say things to me like this. You know, some dishes in my kitchen were shaking. Were demons shaking the dishes in my kitchen? I'm serious now. It sounds horrible, but that's what they ask. Is Satan or the demons, are they haunting my living room and making sounds at night? Listen, I, I want to be very clear. The least of my concerns is whether some demon is shaking my dishes. I don't care what the demons want to do with my flatware, Right? They can move all the cups they want. They can spook my dog. They can float around my living room and make noise at night in my hall. I don't really care. And I'll tell you, I don't think this is the spiritual war Paul's talking about. And incidentally, I guarantee you, demons are not very interested in your dishes. Okay? Paul's talking about the war for your mind and for your heart, which expresses itself in your behaviors. Demonic activity is predominantly about lying. Satan is the father of lies. He wants to lie to you. He wants to turn you from God. He wants to blind, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, the mind of unbelievers. Why? So they do not see the gospel. So they do not see the good news of what? Of the glory of Christ. That's their work. That's been their chief activity from the Garden of Eden. Satan didn't prowl about the Garden of Eden and spook Adam and Eve behind bushes. Satan came to them and lied to them to turn them from God. 
Listen to what Paul says about spiritual warfare in 2 Corinthians. You can turn there. We're in Romans. Just go 1 Corinthians and then 2 Corinthians. That's the order. 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 3. For though we walk in the flesh, and this isn't talking about um, the flesh is a sin principle. In some places it is. Here Paul's just using the flesh referring to our physical body, our physicality. For though we walk in the flesh, we are, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion. You hear what we're destroying? What are we destroying? Arguments. And every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. That's the war we're in. We're in the war for our thoughts. We're in the war for our minds. That is the spiritual battle. We are worried about Satan dressing up like a ghoul and scaring children jumping out of closets like some kind of boogeyman. That's not what we need to be worried about. What we need to be worried about is the books we read and the music we listen to and the movies we watch and the thinking that we participate in and the messages we give to each other in which we are lying to each other, in which Satan sits perched, I think he sits perched right outside the mall, just saying, come on in and become discontent. Come on in and lose a sense of thankfulness. You know where Satan is? Satan isn't in your cupboards messing with your dishes. He's on your bookshelves. He's in your children's schools. He's on your television. He's coming over your radio waves. He's on your iPhone. He's in your computer doing what? Sending you lies. That's what he does. He's in your friend's mouth, and he's in your mouth as you lie to one another. That's how he works. That's how he works. In common, everyday, regular ways to get us to turn from Christ to something else. That's the war. That's the war. Paul says this in Ephesians chapter 4. If you keep going, you're in 2 Corinthians, Galatians, and Ephesians. Paul, if you look at chapter 2, we see that we're dealing with this. Chapter 2, and start there. And you were dead... Verse 1, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we once all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Do you hear what Satan's doing? He's leading us into being children of disobedience. That's where we were. We were dead in our sins. Christ saved us from that. Now look at chapter 4 of Ephesians. And look at and verse 20. He's telling us to turn from sin. And then verse 20 says this. Saying, you know, some people are caught up in their sin. Verse 20 says, but that is not the way you learn Christ. Assuming you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. To put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Hear that? And to put on the new self, create the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. Paul is speaking about your mind. You have to put off the old self and put on the new self. The war is for your mind and your heart. That's what it's for. Look at Ephesians chapter 5, verse 6 drives on this again let no one deceive you with empty words for because of these things the wrath of god comes upon the sons of disobedience therefore do not associate with them for at one time you were darkness but now you are light in the lord walk as children of the light the fruit of the light is found in all that is good and right and true and try to discern what is pleasing to the lord take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness but instead expose them, for it's shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. 
Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the word or excuse me, the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine. That's talking about buy wine. The wine isn't actually, you know, the 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 content of your drunkenness. The wine is the agent that makes you drunk. Not be drunk with wine, but be drunk by, or excuse me, for that's debauchery, but be filled by the Spirit. The Spirit is now the agent that fills you. And what does he fill you with? Look at the next phrase. Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. You hear the drive in this fight? As those of us who are children from our old life to our new life, from the darkness to the light, who are in the battle, do you hear what it is from evil to righteousness? It is about discerning the will of the Lord, doing the will of the Lord, being filled up with the will of the Lord, which is found in the word of God. And he says, you want to do battle? Then you better, put, you better get this sword in your hand and wield it. You will lose if you do not. Look what he goes on in Ephesians 6. And verse 10, Ephesians 6 and verse 10, after he talks about the godly relationships we ought to have, he says this, Finally, be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. What are the schemes of the devil? The schemes of the devil are not to spook your dog. The schemes of the devil are what? To lie to you. To turn you from righteousness. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on what? The belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. Hear what he's talking about here? We have to fight. We have to believe in, trust in, look to, love, remind ourselves daily of, live in the truth of the gospel. That's what we have to do. Trusting in Jesus always. That's how we fight. Looking to the word daily. We fight by dwelling on the truth. We fight by preaching the gospel to ourselves every day. We fight by reading the word of God. We fight by speaking the word of God into one another's lives and praying for one another. That's how we fight. And he says, Paul's saying to us, stay awake. Keep battling. Don't fall asleep. Go home, get on your faces, and make supplication for all the saints. Go home, get on your faces, and open the word of God and devour it and meditate on it day and night. Because you are in a war for your mind and for your heart. That's what you're in a war for. That's what he's saying. You know, all Satan has to do is convince you that there's not really a battle afoot, lull you into sleep, and watch you get your butt kicked. That's all he's got to do. You're in a war. That's what Paul says. Wake up. You're in a battle. The day's coming. The hour's about to burst forth when Jesus will return. Don't fall asleep. Now's not the time. Romans chapter 13 and verse 13 he gives a second antithesis. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual morality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy. What's he talking about here? He's actually talking about or speaking about Paul specifically about something that happened in Rome all the time, which was the re pagan religious worship of the god Bacchus. The god of Bacchus is the god of the grape and the vine, so you know. And every year what they would do is they would hold a feast and they would get drunk together they would participate in excessive gluttony. That's sort of a redundant statement, isn't it? And then they would participate in orgies and unbridled sexual behavior. So they do, yearly. 
in honor of the god Bacchus. And what he's saying is, don't participate in that kind of activity. Don't act like people who do that. Don't do it. Live in the daytime, not in the darkness. And what he's getting at is, is this idea that we love sin under the cover of night, don't we? We love sin when it's not being exposed in front of people. Police officers, actually, when they talk to you, they'll tell you the most active hours for crime is at night. Especially late at night, into the early hours of the morning. Because people love to sin in the cover of night. It's not surprising to us. We want our sinful deeds to be covered by darkness, not exposed by the light, don't we? How many, guys, how many of you guys have ever heard of a party where they said, hey guys, come to our big party. We're going to have a couple of kegs of beer. We're going to act crazy. And you're like, great, when does it start? Well, 10 a.m. 10 a.m.? And in fact, I even hear people who are alcoholics, who drink too much, speaking negatively about those who drink alcohol in the morning. Man, I drink too much, but that guy, he drinks in the morning. Who does that? And what are they getting at? They're getting at the fact that that person is so turned over to alcohol that they actually, what, have no shame left. And most of us, we know that we ought to be hiding this stuff because it's gross. It's shameful. We want to hide it because we don't want our sin to be seen. That's what Jesus says in John 3. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and the people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. See, the most frightening prospect is the full light of the day being shown on our sin, isn't it? So Paul's telling us to walk as in the daytime. Behave as you would if God's full light shone on all your works, and Jesus ruled and walked among you. So he's saying, live like that. Recognize that God sees everything you're doing. 14, verse 14 of chapter 13 says this. Final verse. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Finally, Paul says, put on the Lord Jesus. Make no provision for the flesh. When he says this, he's saying, don't even think about how to gratify the desires of your flesh. Don't even consider it. You know what he's talking about? If you commit gluttony like me, then you know what that means. It means you're in the middle of the afternoon already thinking about how you can gratify the desires of your sinful flesh. Which particular place you're going to go hit up for pastrami, right? You're already thinking about it. If you're committing sexual sin or caught up with pornography, it means you're starting to entertain that lustful thoughts and you're thinking about it, and you're even fighting it going, well, I shouldn't be thinking about this, but then you're going, well, I could do this and this, and I could look at this. He said, don't even do that. Don't make any provision for the flesh. You're a person who still has sinful desires, and Paul's driving home. You've got to fight those desires. You have to learn to think rightly, to discipline ourselves not to participate in the sinful ways of this present darkness, but to behave as those who live in the light of full day. I was um, reading one Christian writer who talked about the fact that he was speaking with an Indian man. And uh, the Indian man had just recently become a Christian. He was talking about this idea of making no provision for the flesh. And he said he, he sees it as like two dogs. He's got this idea, this black dog, which is his flesh, sin, and this white dog, which is the spirit of holiness, and they're fighting. And he's asked the question, how do you figure out which dog wins the fight? And you know what his answer was? The one I feed wins. In other words, he says, whichever dog you feed every day, that's the dog that's going to win the fight. So you need to starve the dog of the flesh. Make no provision for it. And you feed the dog of the spirit. You see, often as Christians, we respond to the sinful world, to the need to avoid sin, to starve the flesh by trying to avoid the world. That's not what Paul's getting at. The Bible says we're to live as those who are in the world, but not of the world. It doesn't say we're to live as those who flee from the world because we're not quite sure how to live in it and not be of it. You know, in this retreat from the world runs the gamut, doesn't it? From having a few, having saying, I'm just not going to have very many unbelieving friends. I'm going to retreat from the world because those unbelievers. 
to hiding your children from those pagans, to going all the way to the extent of building yourself a compound somewhere, hiding out with your family, where you imagine somehow that you're hiding from the world. And what you neglect to notice is that sin is not what's outside your compound out there. That disease is right inside here. And frankly, when you run out of the world and avoid non-Christians and get off the mission of taking the gospel to them so that you can somehow avoid those activities, when you do that, that's not what Paul's getting at. Because when you do that, you actually deceive yourself. Because you start to think, because I'm not doing those things anymore, I'm okay in here. When in fact you're not. Sin is perfectly alive in you. They may be respectable sins that everybody around you doesn't care about, but they're sins nonetheless. And that's not what Paul's talking about here when he says, make no provision for the flesh. He's not saying, run away from the world. He's saying, don't behave as this present darkness behaves. Don't love what they love. Don't do what they do. Don't think about what they think about. What do you do? You starve the dog of the flesh. You stop feeding it. Luther said it this way, talking about living in this world, but not of it. He said, I cannot keep the sparrows from flying about my head, but I can keep from making them a nest in my hair. Right? We can't keep, we can't get out of this dog fight, but we can stop feeding the dog of the flesh. Let me give you an example. I speak with a lot of guys, young guys who struggle with pornography, and I'm just going to give this last example, and I tell them, you have got to stop making provision for it. What does that mean? That means you have to discipline yourselves. You have to find ways to avoid it. If that means you have to get rid of your computer, get rid of your computer. If that means you have to get a filter or some kind of block, get that. Find a way so you can't participate anymore. That's part of it. Barely, just a little bit of it. You have to stop thinking about it. You have to stop doing anything that would gratify it in any way, and never ever fall into the trap that if I commit it just this one last time, I'll satiate it and it'll go away. That isn't how sin works. When you feed sin, it grows. It doesn't get satisfied. You won't survive the temptation, though. You won't survive the temptation just by putting off. You must put on. What? Christ. You must put on the Lord Jesus. He doesn't just say, don't feed that dog. Don't make provision for the flesh. He says, put on the Lord Jesus. Clothe yourself with Christ. Now in Galatians, clothing ourselves with Christ, Paul's talking about our justification. Here, he's talking about our sanctification. Not our being declared holy and forgiven, but our sanctification, our living it out. Every day, every morning, first thing, you get up and you clothe yourself with Christ. You begin to walk with him. You get in his word. You pray. You worship him, and you think of him, and walk with him, and talk with him all day long. You remind yourself of the gospel, you pursue righteousness, you put off the flesh. I will tell you this right now, if I am not doing that actively, beginning of my day and throughout it, when temptation comes, I lose every time. Hear that? I'm not going to get to the temptation, stare the temptation in the face, not having been walking with Jesus, and look it in the face and say, you know what, Jesus is enough for me. No, at this moment, Jesus is not enough for me because Jesus was not enough for me in all the moments that preceded it. So he's going to have to be enough for me in every moment running up to it if he's going to be enough for me in that moment so I can walk from that sin. If I'm not communing with Jesus all day, when that temptation hits, I'll lose. Now, my battle isn't pornography. My battle is something else. Some of these young guys, that's their battle. Some of you aren't battling that. You're battling something that's socially acceptable. Maybe it's gluttony. Maybe it's still finding my um, satisfaction in my vanity, personal vanity, approval of others, substance abuse. Maybe it's anxiety, just the constant thoughts about what worries you. Maybe it's discontentment. Maybe it's impatience. Maybe it's a lack of self-control. Maybe it's judgmentalism. Maybe it's envy. Maybe it's bitterness. Maybe it's greed or pride 
or unthankfulness or selfishness or gossip and slander. I don't know what it is. But just because it's not one of those socially unacceptable sins, you know what I'm talking about? Socially unacceptable ones, like drinking too much or pornography, just because it's not one of those doesn't mean it's any less abhorrent to God. Do you hear that? Because it's still finding your joy and satisfaction in something else. It's still idolatry, and you have to fight it. What do you do with it? You starve the dog. You put on Christ. You turn to Jesus in faith. You look to him. You keep looking to him. You see him for all that he is, and you rejoice in him, and you find deep, abiding satisfaction in him, and then you get up the next morning, and you do it again. But whatever you do, do not fall asleep in the spiritual battle. Let me pray. Father, we ask your help in the spiritual war we're in. We ask you to help us to live as those who are now children of the light, who know you and trust in you, who look to you. We ask that if any of us are falling asleep, that you would wake us up from our spiritual lethargy that we would pursue you, we would not gratify the desires of the flesh. We would put on Lord Jesus Christ, we'd find our satisfaction in him. Pray for those, Father, who are currently still in the darkness, who are, who, whose eyes have been blinded by the God of this world so that they do not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. We pray that you would open their blinded eyes, that they would see the light, that they would look to Jesus, they would know him as their hope that you would help them to walk with him. And Jesus, we pray you would come soon, that you would ultimately save us from this present darkness, that the day would burst forth and that we would see you in all your glory and worship you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.